Welcome home, everyone. Thank you for joining in on this episode of Welcome Home with the Katinas. Welcome Home is a podcast where I, your host Josh, sit down for a conversation with different people who I admire and discuss whatever's on their mind, and especially focus on life at home in times like this. Wherever you are and however you're listening, thank you for your support, and once again, welcome home. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining in uh, to this episode of Welcome Home with the Katinas. Um, It's funny, so I just recorded about 10 minutes of a podcast uh, with our guest, all to realize that only my mic was recording for the first 10 minutes. So we're starting over fresh a little bit, um, but I'm really excited for today's guest and for this episode. And before I get into that, I do want to um, again, thank the people who have been leaving reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts or sending me DMs on Instagram or Facebook. I do read all of them, and uh, I really do want to recognize you guys. So anytime you send in uh, a review or a suggestion or just to share it on your story, I'll, I'll do my best to make sure that your name is said here on the podcast and that you're recognized. So thank you guys for that. Um, as we get into to today's episode, I'm really excited uh, for today's guest, um, especially for our listeners, because I think this is someone who uh, has such a wealth of knowledge and just a lot of wisdom uh, about life and about relationships. And he's somebody that has been an important part of my family uh, since I was a very, very young. And so uh for the second time tonight, I want to thank <laughs> thank you and welcome you, Mr. Jeff Helton. Thank you for being here it's tonight. It's good to be here again since I was here a few minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mr. Jeff, I've uh, I've known you for for years now, and I grew up with your son Jacob. Him and I were in the same class together uh, in second grade, so that's when I, when I wow. first met you and, and your family. Um, and you've uh, been a, an important figure and and. Uh, person in my dad's life and, and his brother's life for years now. Um, so you're a close friend of the mm-hmm. Katina family. We would, you're family to us. And, Thank you, man. Uh, but I do want to give you just a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners uh, who may not know who you are. Yeah. Well, it's fun to be with you, Josh. I've loved listening in to the previous podcast. Uh, you're doing a marvelous job of letting people get to know your family and now some of the family friends. So it's cool to be here. Um, Laura and I have been married for 34 years, and I, we have a fun story. Laura and Joe have this fun connection. Um, you know, as y'all all know, you know, Joe is from Samoa, or however it is you properly pronounce <laughs> it. I'm still working on it after all these years. Laura it was born and raised in Malaysia, and her dad is from Malaysia. So there's this Polynesian culture connection mm-hmm. that they love enjoying together. Uh, Laura is a beautiful, wonderful woman, and so grateful for our marriage and our years together. God bless us with four beautiful kids. We have three boys and a daughter. Uh, all three of our sons are married. Two of them have babies, so we're in the grandparenting stage. We have five grandbabies. Wow. That's so much fun. And then our daughter, Sarah, is uh, she's still single. She's living in Charleston, South Carolina, and she's doing some life coaching, working with uh, young girls and with um, you know, like 14 to 25 years old. Just does some great job helping them navigate relational matters. So it's a beautiful, rich season of life for us in my work. I was a pastor for a number of years, uh, but over the last 11 years, I've run a little practice called Wellspring Coaching and Training that Laura and I work in together. Um, We both do a life coaching. I do some executive coaching as well. Um, My background is more pastoral counseling and some coaching certification where Laura is trained as a, a clinical psychologist, but really does some of the coaching as well. We both love walking with people through relationship issues, whether it's relationships with marriages, relationships with friends, relationship with God, or something that we don't think about a lot, relationship with ourselves. Mm. I think that's one of the biggies for us, is helping people understand how do I really relate well with me, understand my identity, embrace my identity, trust that there's a good future for me. So anything we can do to help people navigate relationships, messy or, or just good ones getting better, that's part of our wheelhouse. That's what we love to do. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I do want to ask you something I didn't ask you on our first take, and I just want to squeeze this one in. So you did mention you're a grandfather of five now, right? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, It's unbelievable. Such a blessing. And, um, you know, I'm not a father yet. My my parents are not grandparents yet. I'll say that. Oh, I hear that frequently. (laughs) I I know they're really excited um, 
for whenever that day comes. And I did want to ask you, how old is your oldest grandchild? She just turned five last week. Okay, so yeah. so we're been, in the young ages, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm curious um, for people maybe who uh, want to be grandparents but aren't yet, or just I want to ask you what has been um, the biggest difference between raising your own children, <laughs> your four children. And now being a grandfather to five, what's yeah. your, what's the difference in the relationship between you and your children and you and your grandchildren? Yeah, yeah. I um, I I think at one level, I I often hear myself saying, when I became a grandparent, I think I lost my mind. Mm-hmm. The, the things that used to feel so important to me about discipline or being tight and careful with things, they fly out the window. You know. I spend money on my grandkids like I don't even think about it. <laughs> and my kids would tell you, you didn't do that with us, Dad. <laughs> I, I think some of it is it's just so much more lighthearted. Your dad and I have talked about this a lot through the years. Is Parenting for us often was driven out of our fear. You know, We felt like we had to make sure we raised our kids the right way and taught them the right values. And so, candidly, for me, my oldest, as you know, is also Josh. Mm-hmm. I, your dad and I often joke, the Josh's got the worst of us <laughs> as being the oldest kids. But my Josh really did. I think I was I was too hard at times. I, I expected too much. I This is how life's supposed to work, so you need to walk in the way. I think my intention was to raise a good, godly kid. But the reality is, is my fear drove me so much as a dad. And so I could overreact to situations. Some of those same situations now with, happen with these little grandbabies. And they're just adorable to me, yeah. Josh. It's just fun. I look at it and I kind of laugh. I just go, yeah, that's just what kids do. It's not that big of a deal. I feel no fear when I look at them. So I think part of it is, and I would hope this would be true for any area of our lives, with age hopefully comes a little bit of maturity and perhaps even some wisdom to be able to look and go, a lot of the things that felt like so big in parenting, they just seem like, oh, the kids are finding their way. They're going to be okay. Yeah. So I find myself more calm, more relaxed, yeah. able to laugh more. And I enjoyed my kids, don't misunderstand. But man, it's just this sense of being able to go, I'm so grateful that I get to love them. And hopefully my legacy is that they knew there was an old man who loved them, cared for them, and walk with them through anything. That's awesome. Yeah, I wanted to squeeze that question in. Great question. I've, um, you know, I've gotten to see my parents kind of go from being parents with kids in the house to now their parents with nobody in the house. It's just them. And I know that uh, they're enjoying that season right Mm -hmm. now. And I think they're thriving. Um, But I think the next chapter of their lives uh, will be being grandparents. So, um, and I know that being a grandfather is something that has been really special to you and that you really enjoy. So I wanted to just tap in on that really quick. But um, I know you've listened to a few of the episodes and you know how they go. I have three questions for my guests. And the first two are more about things that I'm interested in. And then the third one is more about you. And so you're lucky you kind of already got a first run at this (laughs) question, but I still want to ask it because I think it's something that um, I thought about a lot when it comes to people Mm -hmm. who work in a profession where they're sitting down and they're having conversations with other people. Sometimes they know them well, sometimes they don't know them that well. And, um, as a life coach, what you do, a lot of times people come to you looking for insights on, um, things that they're struggling, struggling with in life or challenges that they're facing. And I know that that's something that everyone goes through, even life coaches. You have your own struggles right. and your own challenges. And so I wanted to ask, when you're sitting across from someone and, and they're asking you for guidance or asking you for wisdom, do you find it difficult to separate your own um, struggles and the things that are going on in your own personal life from the time that you're spending with, with a client um, who's looking for advice or wisdom. Yeah. I, I think in my early years of being a pastor, when I would do pastoral counseling and sit with someone, I probably didn't have enough experience, honestly, to be doing some of that work back then. Because I would sometimes hear an issue maybe a couple was going through or a man was struggling with, and I could almost hijack the conversation unintentionally. You know, I think I was trying to be empathic. I think I was trying to show them that I understand 
but I'd start telling way too much of my own story to them. And I think it's a natural rookie mistake, if you please, that a lot of pastors, caregivers can make is so hungry to identify that I need to have the same story or a similar story. Yeah. I'm not sure that's very helpful for people. Uh, I, I think what's really helpful is being able to stay with their story, listening to what's going on, keep asking questions, keep probing. Now, one of the things I've learned is that the way I do that best is when I'm talking with someone to be really aware of what their story is doing in me in that very moment. For example, if I'm talking with a couple that's having trouble with, with, with their budget or having trouble with a child, and if at the same time I'm having trouble with my budget or with the child, when they start talking about that, there's a good chance that I'm going to have emotions about that going, oh yeah, tell me about budget. I know in my heart. Mm. Well, I need to be able to go, oh yeah, I'm feeling something about that, but I need to realize that that helps me be, be compassionate for them. It doesn't mean there's a story I have to tell right now. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that's been helpful for me. At the same time, in my work with people, I want to be courageous to give them an insight into me. I think one of the great fallacies that happens with all caregivers, especially, it seems especially with pastors and coaches, and again, having played in both those worlds, is people come to us expecting us to have all the right answers. And the truth is, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I think I have some wisdom. I think I have some perspective. I think I have some questions. I think I have some thoughts. I may have some ideas, but the right answers, who am I to have those? Yeah. So one of the things I think can be very helpful in, in working with a, 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 an individual or a couple is a willingness to say, man, I really understand that. You know, I've struggled with that or I'm struggling with that at times in my life. And so in, in that way, I'm not separating it. I'm, I'm saying I identify. I know what it's like to struggle in that area, but I'm, I am separating in that I'm not going to go into great detail and try to unpack all my story. We're not here to work on me. We're here to work on you. Yeah. Yeah, I've um, I, I so I've shared in a if, in a few of the past podcasts that um, I've shared stories from my time with my wife Alexis, um, going through premarital counseling with her, and you're the you're mm. one half of the yeah. of our premarital counselors. and not the best half, <laughs> <laughs> you and Miss Laura, and um, you know I haven't myself spent that much time. I did see a therapist for a season of my life during uh, while I was in college. But that really was my experience in premarital counseling was my first like real experience with just in that kind of environment. And I don't know if it's just me or maybe this is something that uh, a lot of people experience when they're in that kind of an environment. But I often found myself like wondering, are are they reading my mind right now? Like, do they (laughs) do they like what do they see in me that maybe I don't see in myself or and I don't know if it's encouraging to me or um, it, it makes me feel better when I hear you say that you don't have all the right answers. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious, do you ever experience like clients coming in with these uh, with expectations that you're going to fix their life and oh. you're going to, you know, you have all the answers basically? Because that's kind of how it felt like for me is like these people have been doing this for However many years you've done it, they've gone to school. They understand my mind better than I understand yeah. it. They 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 know things that um, I don't even know to, that need to be known. And yeah. so I, I wonder, like, do you have that experience often, and how do you handle that with yeah. clients? Yeah, there certainly are people who will come in and almost like you know dump their issue, their problem, whatever it is. And and I've had several people, and I think it's always in a joking way, but we'll say, okay, so fix me, you know? But I think there's an impulse. I know when I go see a counselor, the reason I'm going is help me get unstuck. Help me figure out what's got me blocked or back in this place I don't like to be in. So by definition, I think part of the counseling and coaching process is, is can you help me get unstuck from this place where I am? At the same time, I think there are certain times when people are projecting so much like, okay, be my savior, you know, be God, no, read my mind, know everything yeah. about me. One of the, the philosophies I have as I work with people, and I've had this for a long time, is I believe my role is to be a catalyst, a catalyst. And I think generally it comes from asking questions. If, if I can be a, create a safe environment where they, they feel like, man, I can really tell the truth. If they can believe that, talking about this is going to be safe. It's not going to be gossiped about or repeated. 
then I feel like if in, in creating that kind of a safe environment, I hope my questions will be a catalyst for them to honestly think more deeply. Josh, a lot of this is informed by what I believe about, um, about, the, about the work of God in our lives. I really believe this. I think that all of us have the answers that we need inside of us. I think that's what it means for Christ to live in us. Mm. I just think that there's tons of things that block us from hearing or seeing those answers. Mm. And so, again, my role, I think, is to create enough safe space to say, hey, let's look. Well, what do you want? What do you think? What prompting are you having? What are you thinking about? That doesn't mean there's not skills that people can learn. I, I love giving people skills of emotional intelligence or conflict resolution or communication skills. That, that's an important part of it. But when it comes to deep decision making, fixing their issue, at some point, I want people to find enough of themselves and in finding themselves, find enough of Christ in them to be able to go, oh, maybe this is how I can approach this situation. Yeah. That's good. That's interesting. Um, I I wonder what that's like for when you have clients, because I'm sure you do that they're not Christians and they don't, right. mm-hmm. they don't see, they don't believe Christ is yeah. in them and they're indifferent to it or whatever. What is that like when you have clients like that? Oh, I love telling this story, Josh. When, when I left being a pastor and I went out on my own to start this coaching practice, um, you know, I was praying, Lord, bring people to me. You know, I got to feed the family and had two kids in college at the time. And, you know, folks started coming in. One of the very first people I ever met with was this lady. And she was probably 10, 12 years younger than me. Um, sharp lady, very intelligent, had lived a, a big A-lister kind of life, if you please. And she came in in our very first meeting. She said, so my friend so-and-so referred me to come see you. I said, well, I'm glad you're here. And she said, well, my friend told me that you used to be a pastor. I said, that's right, I did. And then she said, well, I don't want any of your effing Jesus. Mm. I mean, she just laid the smack down. And I looked at her in a moment of either great wisdom or really stupidity. Jesus can tell me when I get to heaven. (laughs) I looked back at her and I said, well, you won't get any of my effing Jesus then. Mm. And we just started talking and I just listened to where she was. I still had the same world view that I believe there's truth in her. Now, I know that Christ didn't live in her. She told me that. But I know this, that there's still truth in her. And I know that God is bigger than anything. So we met for six or seven weeks and there was just this, you know, we talked a lot about the issues going on in her life, the place where she was stuck and a lot of hurt, told me some of her story from her childhood. We dreamed about an action step and how to move forward. And it was week six or seven, Josh, that she came off us and she looked at me and she just said, um, hey, I know you used to be a pastor. Do you think there's anything that, that God would want me to know about what's going on with me during this time? Wow. It took everything in me not to say, oh, you mean that effing Jesus? (laughs) Because there was something in me that was like, wow, if I just give people space, if God wants to do a work in them, he will. It's not my responsibility. I don't have to get them to believe a certain way. Mm. I need to love them and believe for them. And I think that's the essence of the gospel. Love people where they are. If they look like me or if they look nothing like me. If their values are like mine or if they're nothing like mine. Mm. Um, that's 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 the man I want to be. That's how I want to live my life. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, I grew up in a in a Christian household. I grew up going to church and mm-hmm. uh, one thing that was preached to me from a young age was, you know, you need to be out sharing the gospel. Who are right. you leading to Jesus? Yep. Who are you uh, evangelizing to? And I think, I don't know if the if I just misinterpreted the message when I was young, but I think I always had this concept in my mind that, you know, I need to, I need to be everyone I meet. They need to I need to lead them through the sinner's prayer. Yeah. And uh, I need to just smack them in the face with yeah. Jesus and. Uh, I think there's some people who are really good at that. Absolutely. And, but I'm not that good at it, at least not right now in my life. But it's encouraging to me to hear that from you that sometimes sharing Jesus is not uh, as direct or as, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not so 
just in your face, yeah. but it's just sharing time with people and, and it comes out when, when you're with them and they see that. So One of the early church fathers, I think it was Augustine or Augustine, people say it different ways, yeah. um, said, share the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Mm-hmm. There's something about that quote that that always has motivated me. You know that, and I mean, I was trained in evangelism explosion. I used to go door to door. And I think there's a time and a space when I need to open my mouth and I need to speak to somebody. But the reality is, the Spirit does a far better job of wooing people than I do. Mm-hmm. I know that Jesus's great command of 613 that He could have chose, the one He chose was, "Love the Lord your God." heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second exactly like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't qualify it. It's not just love your Christian neighbor, love your straight neighbor. It's love your neighbor. Yeah. Mic drop. Mm. And that's how I think we're called to live. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for That's awesome. Mm. Um, I guess I'll move on to your second question. Okay, which here we go. You haven't heard this one before. So, <laughs> uh, One thing that uh, I'm interested in, and I know that you have... Uh, some experience in this and I think it's over the past few years has become more popular in in Christian circles is uh, personality tests and assessments and the two that I'm most familiar with is the Mm Myers-Briggs and um, the Enneagram right and I want to just ask you um, your evaluation and assessment of how useful, how are those things useful for people? And maybe how are they not useful? How, how do they get um, abused or misconstrued? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's funny. I've been a personality tool junkie for years. Mm-hmm. I started on the Myers-Briggs, moved to the DISC, uh, came back to the Myers-Briggs, went to the Enneagram, and then there's probably a dozen others that I didn't get as deeply involved with as, that I've been exposed to. Um, the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, and the DISC, I've been certified in all of those 15 plus years. You know, uh, The Enneagram is really hot in our area right now, the last four or five years. You know, we have a couple of people who have a strong national presence that live in our area. So man, a lot of people talk about the Enneagram. The thing that I think is great about Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, DISC, any of those personality tools, is they create a wonderful language to help us understand some common characteristics that people have. I think that's something that can be super helpful. And I think to understand that um, God created us with a certain personality type, and that personality type isn't right or wrong, but that personality type can come out in its healthy version or it can come out in a really unhealthy version. Um, I think what I appreciate about that is is it gives a language when maybe when I'm working with a team and my executive coaching or when I'm working with a church to be able to go in and, and help people understand how they're different and then how we uh, honor and acknowledges, acknowledge those differences so we can work together better. So I'm a big fan of using personality tools when they're a springboard to two things, deeper communication and deeper connection. Mm. I think they can be fantastic at doing that. I, I know, for example, in the Enneagram world, you're an Enneagram nine, if I remember right. right. Okay. My wife's a nine. I love nines. The nines are the peacemakers. So I need to understand that about an Enneagram nine because your dad and I both are Enneagram threes. Threes, you know, they're the achievers. They're the accomplished. They get it done. We talk a lot. We have a lot of words. Mm-hmm. Well, I see this with me and my wife. I, I bet you've seen this with your dad. That there's times that the three for the nine can feel like, you know, the nine can feel like, oh, would you please stop talking so much, right? right. I get it. My wife's a three as well. <laughs> God love us all, right? <laughs> I remember that from premarital now. I remember us talking about the, the opposites on that. Yeah. And then there's times that a three, I look at the nine and I just want to shake them and say, wake up, engage, come on, let's go. Well, if I don't understand, I can turn that into, well, my wife just doesn't care. She's not really engaging. But if I can understand that her energy level might be lower than mine right now, it gives me a place to be super compassionate and just say, hey, babe, is this a good time to talk? And sometimes she may go, man, I'm really tired. I just need a little recharge time. Mm -hmm. When we do those kind of things, think extrovert, introvert in Myers-Briggs, right? That can be really valuable to us. So I think there's, I'm a huge advocate of using those tools when we use them in the proper and the healthy way. One last thing on that before I talk about the shadow side of it is I think when we're using one of those personality tools, 
we have to um, we have to be willing not just to see these wonderful strengths we have, but we have to be willing to see. Ooh, every strength has a corollary weakness to it too. Yeah, and it's interesting, Josh. The weaknesses usually are our strengths being taped to an excess of this. So, yeah. for example, for the peacemaker, gosh, peacemakers are awesome. They're beautiful. Our world, if ever, now needs peacemakers. But when the peacemaker starts defining peacemakers, oh, I'll make the peace at all costs. I'll sacrifice my desires at all costs. It doesn't matter what I want. I'll do anything to make the peace. Then that strength becomes a weakness. Yeah. And so I think when we look at it, it's cool to go, oh, this is what I am. It's so cool. We have to go, oh, yeah, and, and this is what I do also. Yeah. I think that leads perfectly into where some of these personality tools can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's when we try to put people in boxes. Or when we try to use it to justify why I act the way I can. On both of those, just a sentence or two. I think it's easy for me to look and go, oh, well, she's a two or she's an eight or he's an ENFP or he's an ISTJ and be able to put them in a box and go, well, I know how they'll react. That is so limiting. None of us are just one number. None of us are just one personality type. We have access to every one of those categories. I tell people this with the Enneagram all the time. There's nine types but you have access to all nine spots. It's just that there's one, maybe two spots that you use much more naturally that are kind of front forward for you. So when I hear someone's personality type and I put them in a box, that's an abuse of the tool. I think the second way we abuse it is when I go, well, I can't do that because I'm a three and threes, we don't like to do that. Mm-hmm. Or I'm an ENFP and we don't do structure. We just always like to play by you know, the seat of our pants. Sorry, you don't get to do that. Uh, your personality is not an excuse for your behavior. It helps you understand your tendencies or your proclivity. So those are the two biggest ways where I see that it can be dangerous. Yeah. I um, The Enneagram is something... So I... I've been, uh, I was a skeptic about it and I think I probably still am a little skeptical, but I have, um, just the little time that I've spent looking into the Enneagram and, um, I've, the things I've focused on are one myself and then, um, also the people who are close with me. So I have a, um, a brief understanding of my parents, my brother and my wife's Enneagram types and, um, but one thing that the Enneagram did for me, just looking at myself, is it helped me to appreciate parts of myself that I didn't really appreciate before. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one thing that has always been told to me growing up is that you're so, you're so soft-spoken, Josh. You're, you're just a big teddy bear. And um, I didn't really like being told that growing right. up. Uh, I, I found it... You know, I know people meant it as a compliment, but I didn't take it as a compliment a lot of the times. And when I got to reading and, and listening about the peacemaker type, the type nine, and just, I, I think I got to see maybe a little better what people saw in me when they would say things like that to me. And so um, it's helped me to uh, celebrate and appreciate that part of myself that maybe is a little more soft spoken or laid mm-hmm. back or relaxed or whatever you want to, whatever word you want to put on it, mm-hmm. um, to know that that is a strength and not something to be ashamed of. Yeah. So I just thought I'd share that with you. Uh, I'm so glad because I think, I think people need to hear that, that sometimes people see stuff in us that we don't fully understand value or appreciate in us. And I think a tool like the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram, it really can help us realize, oh, wait, that's not a weakness. That's that's actually the the glory, the dignity of how I've been created. So I think it's a powerful story, Josh, to be able to go, wait, this this is who I am. And because I am at times self-spoken, that doesn't make me weak. Yeah. Just like with the Enneagram 8, because they can be very sharp and direct, doesn't mean they have to be bullies. Mm-hmm. Now, can they be? Sure. Can the nine be weak? Sure. But that's not who we are. It's just part of our wiring. So I'm really glad you shared that. Somebody needed to hear that's my guess. Yeah, I think uh, it's funny you brought up the eight because my brother Eli's <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things in Eli growing up that I wish were more a part of who I was. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny that the eight and the nine are right next to each other on the Enneagram. Um, because in my from my experience, I'm very... All of the eights that I know in my life are very different from who I am. Yeah. Um, and so 
but learning about the eights and understanding, oh, well, this is a this is more who Eli is, and understanding that's his strength, but also his weakness, and there's struggles that come with that as well, was helpful for me. So that's cool. Um, thanks for taking time to talk about that. Yeah, with no, me. I love that. I can talk about that all day long. Yeah, I, love I think it. a lot of people are really interested in that. And uh, you mentioned, you know, helping people understand themselves is something that you're passionate about, and I think that personality tests have been a tool for me in my life to help me understand myself a little bit better. Yep. So, um, I guess with that, we'll move on to question number three. All right. Drum um, roll. And this is a question that I ask all of my guests and it's open-ended. So feel free to take it mm. wherever you want to take it to. Um, but the question is simply this, what's going on at home? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've loved when you've asked that question I've loved hearing the different answers um, and if I was smart, I would have anticipated that. I totally forgot that was the third question until <laughs> you said that. <laughs> so I'm flying a little cold on this one. When I think about what's going on at home, I, I think the first word that comes to my mind is the word um, adjusting. Um, it has been such a cool season. You know, in some ways, Laura and I could have been empty nesters for probably four or five years. But we've had one of our children satellite back home for some different reasons after college to save some money before getting married or in the transition before moving. And so in some ways, I feel like we've really only been empty nesters for five or six months. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it hasn't been a terribly long time. And I think we're, we're still adjusting to that rhythm of how we do that well together. But it's, it's not just us because the truth is, I think we both are very grateful. We built some good discipline in our marriage through the years so that when we got to this place, we wouldn't be two strangers. But we're still trying to figure out, well, okay, you know, if I want to watch a movie and you want to read a book, do we both have to watch a movie or both read a book? So we're, we're learning we're learning that dance. But I think some of the adjusting, too, is just adjusting for me to getting older, mm-hmm. you know? I, I turned 62 this summer, and I feel great. And I'm, in, I'm in pretty good health. My, my doctor might disagree with some of my blood work, but, but for the most part, I feel great. You look great. Well, you're a good man. You're a good man. We'll get you to the eye doctor next week. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I think I find myself a lot thinking about how do I end life? You know, how, how does this go? I mean, I hope I have, like my dad, I hope I have 30 more years. I, I want to love my family well. I want to be there for them. But I think what's going at home for me a lot is I find myself reading a lot of books about um, how, you, how, you, how you age well, how you, how you give back what you've been given. I've been given so much. I'm such a, a blessed man. And so I think at home, there's a lot of me thinking about how do I give to these grandbabies, this legacy generation, you know? I might meet one of their kids one day, but there's a really good chance mathematically I may not ever, you know, to, but to realize stories about me could carry on for another one or two generations. I want to leave a legacy of faith, a legacy of love, a legacy of compassion, a legacy of hope. So I think a lot about that. That's part of what's going home right now. Um, that's kind of in the philosophical or kind of the space of the emotional space I'm and Laura are in. I think practically what's going on at home right now is that, um, we're just we're just really enjoying dreaming together. Uh, about about six months ago, I, I realized Laura and I are working in a somewhat unhealthy way. We share an office, and so like some days I'd work eight to one or eight to two, and then she'd come in and work like two to six or two to seven. And I started realizing here we are empty nesters, and I'm working mornings and you're working afternoons mm-hmm. on three days a week. Um, and so. Uh, First of September, I rented a new office space. So now I have a space, she has a space, and we're working to get our calendars aligned where we can really enjoy more time at home together, you know, to work our five, six hours a day. Uh, She works three days, I'll work four or five days a week, and then be able to play some more together or or go watch grandbabies for a whole afternoon. So again, it's all about adjusting for us. We're learning a new rhythm and a way to really maximize the time we have. so that's the biggest word that comes to my mind with that question is yeah. it's just a cool season of, of learning how to be more present with the people I love. Mm. One more example, like this morning, your dad texted him at seven o'clock this morning. He came over and sat on my back porch and we just sat there for an hour, drank coffee and just kind of caught up and talked and just were with each other. Mm. There was a time in my life when you wake up, you get your shower, you get out the door and you get to work. Yeah. It's cool to be able to be a little more leisurely. That's an adjustment for me. Mm. And just to visit with a man that I love. See, as a nine, that sounds really nice to me. (laughs) Exactly. Slow morning like that. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I'm learning from my wife. uh, I do want to talk about 
you talked about getting older and yeah uh recently i was kind of reminded of um i was reminded of death mm-hmm. because my wife's grandfather passed away uh, oh. about a month ago now and so her and i went to um North Carolina for his funeral and just to be with her family for about a week. And, um, I didn't know her grandfather very well. I had only, uh, met him once Mm. and, but I was surrounded. I was in rooms where people would just tell stories about, uh, grandpa Jack. And, uh, I, I thought about my own life and, um, you know, I feel like I'm getting older. I turned 25 and I turned 25 this year. Yeah. And, but I was thinking about my own life and wondering, you know, what kind of stories are going to be told about me whenever I pass mm-hmm. away? And, um, you know, I, I was thinking about Alexis's grandfather and, you know, nobody knows, um, when their time will come. Right. Um, he lived a long, full life, thankfully. Uh, but, I guess what I was wondering is for Grandpa Jack, if he could be there, um, what kind of things would he remember about his life that maybe he wished he could change or do differently? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, did he feel like he lived, he didn't leave anything on the table? Um, From the stories that were told about him, I feel like he probably would feel that way. Uh, But I thought about myself and I thought if I were to die today, would I feel like I didn't leave anything on the table? Mm-hmm. And I think my answer was probably no. I yeah. feel like there is stuff that I haven't done or dreams I haven't pursued that mm-hmm. um, if if I didn't have a chance to, I think I would regret. And so I guess while I have you here, yeah. um, I would love to ask you, if what kind of advice would you give mm-hmm. to a young man like me, 25 years mm-hmm. old, um, who has life ahead of them, like how would you have done anything different from when you were 25? Yeah, wow. Um, such a deep question. <laughs> I, uh, I think of that a lot. I think there's about a five-year window shortly after I turned 50 that I lived almost daily feeling a whole lot of resentment and regret for a lot of things in my life. I won't go into the details of them here, but they were work-related. They were things in our marriage. They were parenting-related. And, and I think it took me a, some, some counseling that I had to do. It took me some walking with some good friends to get to a point of being able to, to kind of release that resentment and regret and be able to go, you know what? Yes, with the wisdom I have today, I wish I would have handled a lot of situations very differently. But the reality is we only have the tools that we have. Hmm. You know, you're 25 years old. You don't have the same tools as a 45-year-old or 65-year-old. That doesn't make you less than them. That just means you don't have the same tools. That's mm-hmm. all it means. And so one of the things I would say to my 25-year-old self, or I would say to you, Josh, tonight is see yourself realistically. Be willing just to go, man, I don't know it all. I don't, I don't have it all. I think secondly, be willing to give yourself grace. I don't know anybody who's ever lived, that doesn't at some point look back and go, wow, why did I handle that that, that way? Or, wait, w- was, was that really a good thing I did? And the answer many times, if we're honest, is oh, I didn't handle that very well. Hmm. And I think if we can be self-compassionate and be gracious and be willing just to go, man, um, I made a mistake. That's okay. What can I learn from it? How can I move forward in a different way? And then I think the other thing I would say is this is, Live with gratitude for the good and the bad. Super easy to live with gratitude for the good. Yeah. It's, it's much harder to be grateful for the quote-unquote bad. And I think if we don't, we end up carrying that kind of stuff into older age. And, and at some point, it turns into kind of what I battled with for that window, some, some resentment, even bitterness. Mm. Remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? Yeah. There's this awesome scene toward the end of that movie. You know, the whole story is this old man retelling his story that he remembers from the war. You get so caught up in this incredible movie and them on this journey of rescue to save this one private. And almost everyone who goes in that that rescue is killed, you know, by by the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And he gets brought home safely. 
And, and toward the end, the, the camera zooms in on this young 21-year-old private sitting on the battlefield, realizing everybody that's come to fight for him has died. And his face just dissolves into this 80-year-old man who's standing at the grave of one of these men who saved his life. And, and, as, and, and as, as you see the 80-year-old man, you realize that's Private Ryan at 80 years old, and you see his family and his children, his grandchildren in the background. This camera zooms in on him, and then his wife comes up to him, and his wife comes up to him, and there's tears running down his cheeks, and he looks at her, and he just says, tell me, was it worth it? Was I a good man? I think so many of us, as we get older, we live with that angst. And I think that's often connected to a lack of complete gratitude mm. and the acceptance that there were things in life that were really tragic. It's super tragic that people who came to rescue him got killed. And yet there's gratitude for him that uh, he had the chance to know a family and build a family and build a life together. So I think it's a lot of it's just relax. You're going to mess up. You don't have all the tools. Uh enjoy, as y'all used to say in high school, enjoy the ride. <laughs> you know, Just know that this is part of your journey and you'll make mistakes and be gracious to yourself, learn from them, and then live with a deep, deep heart of gratitude. Mm. I think the reason that, that, that comes to my mind tonight as you ask this question is um, I think of a story I heard several years ago that I think it's out of the Latin culture. And, and I, my Spanish is terrible, so I won't try to say the words in Spanish, but um, it's it's... For those of us who speak Spanish, they could say it. It's the three days of death, and they say it. And tres dias muertas. Yeah. I tried. Whatever it is. Something close. I won't try either. <laughs> I shouldn't have. Uh, maybe we can edit that one out. No. Uh, but but, but they, they talk about there's these three days of death. That, that the first day of death is, is the day that your heart literally stops beating. The second day of death is the day that they put your body into the ground. And the third day of death is the day they stop speaking your name. And in their little blessing, they say, and may that third day of death never come. Mm. I, I think that's my desire. I hope I live my life with such a, a robust love of others um, that, that I'm remembered, not in a narcissistic, it's all about me way, but in a sense of, man, my life mattered. Yeah. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of my life, it all mattered, and it honored God in some way. Mm. That's awesome. That's good. That. Um, I think a lot of people can relate, at least I can, that, yeah, I want my life to matter. Mm -hmm. Like I want, um, a lot of times I find myself asking that, that question when I'm working, um, I'm thankful for my job and, uh, you know, it's, I'm lucky to, to have it. But a lot of times I ask myself is what I'm, does what I'm doing matter at yeah. all? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times I have a hard time being able to say, yes, it does matter. But, um, you know, I think just being present in the moment is one thing that I've been thinking about. And just whatever's in front of me, mm -hmm. just be there and just yeah. do that. And um, so that's what's been getting me through work. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, living a life that matters is something that that I want to do, and um, yeah. I'm sure you do too, and mm -hmm. I, I think you have, and you have a lot more life left to mm -hmm. live. Thank you, my friend. For so long, I felt like that living a life that mattered meant I had to do something great. Mm. There's a beautiful verse that's becoming a life verse for me in First Thessalonians 4. I think it's verse 11 and 12. And Paul says this, Make it your ambition to live simply, mind your own business, and work with your hands. Mm. Josh, I love the simplicity of that. Yeah. I, I love that it's just saying, man, focus on that which has been entrusted to you, and that's a great life. Can you say that one more time, that verse? First Thessalonians 4, 11, 12, somewhere there. Paul says, make it your ambition, three things, to live simply, mind your own business, and work with your hands. Mm. And the mind your own business, it has with the idea of just be stewards of what you've been given. Yeah. And the work with your hands just means whatever is your gifts, do it. But it's that first part, live simply. Mm. That I just love and going, I spent so long thinking that a purposeful life means I've done something great. I think I've done something great if I've been faithful and if I've loved those that God has put in my pathway. Yeah. That's enough. What does live simply mean to you? Man, I think that's one that I've really had to 
talk about deconstruct is a hot word in this yeah. culture. I've had to deconstruct because again, I think I was driven to achieve, to perform. That three in me especially does. Live simply doesn't mean I live lazily, lazy at all. It means that, I, but it also means I don't have to make things so complex. So for example, when I do mess up, being able to go, okay, it, it's okay. It, it, it doesn't define you. Man, as a three, that it used to kill me because my image was so important. I've got to make sure you know how good I am at something. Instead of being able to go, well, I didn't do very well on that. That's okay. I think sometimes for me, live simply means, am I, am I unplugging from some things that I really don't need? I'm amazed how many things I can have in my life. And I'm not anti-material. I'm not saying that. But I'm amazed at how easy it is to get caught up with making something much more complex. We're going to the beach as a family next week, for example. I love when we go to the beach because we live simply. You know, I go and I buy, I love to cook. I go and I buy groceries. Our meals are pretty simple, but we make them extravagant because we're sitting around with each other, loving on each other. We don't have to go out and spend tons of money at a restaurant. We just want to be together. Uh, we won't, we won't, you know, do any big activity at an amusement park. Nothing wrong with doing that. Nothing at all. But for us, sitting on the beach all day long, talking, laughing, playing frisbee, catching up, living simply. Sometimes it's it's just that. I just want to be present in the moment. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reminded while you were talking of, uh, I was thinking back to. Uh, the time that I did get to meet Alexis's grandfather, mm-hmm. I met her, uh, both her grandparents, probably, uh, I want to say almost a year ago now. And I remember, uh, they were just having a, <laughs> they would have conversations with each other. Like I wasn't in the room. Yeah. And, um, that's awesome. And I remember they had a, they were having a conversation and Alexis, Alexis's grandmother said, Jack, when did we get so old? And, and he just, I don't remember what he said, but one of them said, we just woke up one day and we were old. Yeah. It's, I didn't feel it coming. I just woke up one day and I was old. And, um, I think one day we're all, if we're, if we're lucky, we'll wake up and we'll be old one day. And I hope that when that day comes for me and, when it comes for you, because it's still a long ways off for yeah, you, I love it. Um, that we're, we'll be able to say we lived simply mm-hmm. and and we lived a life that, that meant something, yes. um, but in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, on my episode with my Uncle Yeti, I forget who it was, but he, he got a chance when he was younger to meet uh, one of his idols. And he said he remembered what he said to him when he met him, I think he was like 11 or 12 and it stuck with him uh, to this day. He said to a young Yeti Katina, whenever you meet someone, make sure that you leave them with an encouraging word. And so I want to give you, Mr. Jeff, an opportunity to leave us with an encouraging word. Our, our listeners, whatever is on your heart. Um, I think you're just so full of wisdom and, mm. uh, I'm always encouraged when I have time with you and mm. I know our listeners will be too. Mm. So anything you want to share with well, us to close us out, um, yeah. the mic is yours. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to do two things. Um, I, I think the first one is this is, um, at, at our very best moments, um, we live one day at a time. I, I, I love Psalm 90. Uh, Moses writes it. It's the oldest psalm in, in all the book of Psalms. And it has that famous verse, you know, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Th- that psalm is packed with so much, but I think at the core, what I always think about with that is a practical tool that I hope is encouraging and that is this, that there, there's, there's a, I'm sure there's a much clever, cuter way to say this. I thought there's a poem that says this. I don't know it right now, but here's what I believe my whole heart. Tomorrow, uh, I really don't know what's coming down the pike. I've got my plans. I'm going to do them if, if the Lord wills, as James says. Um, yesterday, man, there was good, bad, and ugly in it. There really was. And I, I want to learn from it, as I said earlier. But, but today, this is the precious gift I have. This, this moment with you, Josh, it's the most important thing in my day right now. And I've done some important things today. And I'm going to go see my wife in a minute. And when I'm with her, it's going to be the most important thing in my day. But right now, I want to be completely with you in this time we spent together. And I think if we could learn, and, and, and I'm speaking to myself first and foremost when I say this, 
if I could really learn to slow down and be present every day just with the people right in front of me, I wonder how this world would look so differently. So I think if there's any word of encouragement is be fully alive today. You said something a few minutes ago that was almost a direct quote of one of my heroes, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary to South America, was martyred by the Aka Indians back in the 50s or early 60s. And, and, and Jim Elliott, one of his, his famous quotes is this, wherever you are, be all there. Mm. It's so simple. Mm. It can be so hard to live. So my word of encouragement, wherever you are, even as you're listening to this podcast, be all there. And if something's prompted you in this podcast that, man, I need to reach out to a grandfather, like you were talking about Alexis's grandfather, or man, I need to reach out to someone, be all there. Do it. There's something great and something rewarding when we live full in each moment. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Mr. Jeff, for your time. Uh, Wait, I, I want to do my second thing, oh, can I? Oh, Because I think it's the most important thing. Go for it. And I think this is, this is an encouragement of a different sort. So as I've been listening in to the podcast, there's a question that keeps coming up. And I wasn't asked it tonight, so, but I feel compelled to answer it. Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? <laughs> Let's hear it. Well, here's the deal. I have an idea where this is going. Well, you do. You know my background. Uh, name for me, just kind of a little check-in as a basketball fan, name to me the number of players to win a scoring title and make the all-defensive first team in the same season. Um, I'm just going to guess. Is it Michael Jordan? And anybody else? So it's really a cool answer, I think. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan is one of the answers. He did that nine times. Nine Say times. Say it again. What's the... Nine times he won the NBA scoring title and made first team all defensive team. So a stud with the rock in his hand uh-huh. and a stud taking the rock away from others. Nine times. Kobe Bean Bryant, who your dad um, mistakenly thinks is the greatest of all time, <laughs> did that twice. Okay. LeBron and rest of the NBA... Zero. So the, those are the only two that have ever done that. So I rest my case. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are so many great players to play the game, and I know we're all influenced by, you know, where we were in time and what the teams meant to us. And I was lucky enough to live in Chicago yeah. during the amazing Bulls era. I went to at least one game every year in the six year of championships and at least one playoff game every year. I had some wealthy friends who loved me well. And so for me, man, I love MJ. That is not encouraging and it's really not important, but I told your dad, I want to answer that question. That's awesome. Well, (laughs) if you look up right there to your left, I actually have a poster of the two players you mentioned. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I've been hanging up these these posters here the last couple of weeks. Um, but I'm glad we got some Michael Jordan representation here. <laughs> I, know, I, know. I, I know that there's some listeners who were not happy with my dad's answer from that. So um, thank you so much for your time, Mr. Oh, Jeff. It's, it's really man. a, so glad a to pleasure just getting to sit down and talk with you. Um, hopefully we'll do this again sometime. I'd be honored. Yeah, it's been awesome. To those who are listening, thank you so much for tuning in today. We'll be back with more episodes soon. Have a great day.